Amen. Thank you, Keith. Good morning, everyone. Happy Valentine's Day. I, uh, my daughter, Fern, who's five years old, she told me this morning, she said, is the church going to be decorated for Valentine's Day? I said, no, we just, we, you know, we don't have, we can't store decorations in the church for everything. We have Christmas, you know, because it's about Jesus and we're about Jesus. She said, well, Jesus is all about love and Valentine's Day is all about love. So why don't the church decorate on Valentine's Day? <laughs> I said, all right, next, we're going to put it in the budget next year. You got it, girl. She's a sharp cookie. Um, but yeah, I'm really, I'm honored to share with you all. Today, I, the topic for my message today is called Take Another Look at Revelation. Take Another Look at Revelation. And Revelation, I'm referring to the book of Revelation. So we're going we're gonna to dive into the book of Revelation this morning. And, um, and yeah, I want to tell a quick story, which is going to take us there. So I have another daughter. Uh, she's four now. Her name's Lilu. And Lilu is my, she has got this heart for justice. So, so Lila will we'll watch a movie, me and, me and um, I have three daughters now, I have a really young one who's four months, um, so she won't watch, but me and my other daughters and um, my wife will sit and we'll watch a movie, and I'll tell you, like, kids' movies are like, when you're an adult, you realize how crazy kids' movies are, like, like it's for kids, but there's like so much violence, and like, even the best ones are just, you know, over the top, right? Like, does that guy really have to, like, slash the other guy in the face and punch him? Like, so there's, there's these, you know, you, you're aware of these things that come up in those movies when you're sitting there with a four-year-old because she'll react, right, to different, whether it's violence, whether it's injustice, things that aren't going the way that, you know, is right, um, where the bad people are, you know, gaining, gaining territory in the storyline. Lilu will, will, will panic. She'll, she'll get jostled, right? And so, and, and each of us can feel that way, but we're not as expressive as a four-year-old, right? When we watch movies, we see certain, you know, bad people overcome injustice, and we don't like it, and, and, and that's part of what draws us into the plot. So, so we watch these movies together, and, and these things transpire, and I've learned one way to kind of keep her calm and at ease is, well, first of all, I, I get her in my lap. I say, all right, come sit in my lap, so she feels that sense of security. I'm present. I'm with her. Okay, that's step one. Step two is when something happens that's unjust or wrong and she flinches, I say, don't you worry, don't you worry. I, I know how this story ends. Don't you worry. Like, the, you know, the, the bad people are prospering here. These things are happening. I know it was unjust. I know they shouldn't have kicked that rabbit or, you know, whatever it was. But it's going to work out. It's going, the, the, the good people are going to, to overcome in the end. And it's going to be all right. And so I tell her the story in advance because it allows her to have peace in the moment and actually enjoy the movie that she's engaging in. All right? I tell her in advance what's going to happen. I comfort her and remind her that all things are going to be put in their right order come the end of the movie. All right? Because I've seen all these movies because you shouldn't let your kids watch a movie you haven't seen. Let's just be real because I don't know what's in there. Um, so why am I telling you this story? So the book of Revelation, I, I see it as Lilu is me and, and is us, and, and I am, I'm representing God the Father in this storyline, where we're going through life, we're seeing injustice, we're getting, we're getting irked by it, we're getting frustrated by it, we're getting downtrodden, disappointed by it, and the book of Revelation is, is Jesus' testimony to you and I, it's him saying, I'm present, come in my lap, come be with me. I'm going to let you know things are going to be okay, and I'm going to let you know in advance some of the things are going to take place so that when you experience them, you're not weary, you're not downcast, you're not, you're, you're not thrown off. And, and so that, you know, in essence is what the book of Revelation, the, the value that it provides to the church. And, and certainly it's historical context, and I'll get into that, it provided that. But even now, in today's context, it provides that. And essential, essentially it says Jesus is coming back and he's going to win and he's going to establish a kingdom that you and I get to rule and reign in and we're, it's all going to be okay. He's going to wipe away every tear from every eye and he's bigger than every circumstance and every trial and every 
thing that's going to come on the earth. He's way bigger. That's what the book of Revelation says in a nutshell. All right? So the main purpose of the book is to encourage the church to endure, to overcome. It's actually encouraging and comforting if you read it through the lens that I'm going to give you today. <laughs> I, I think you'll find the book of Revelation much more accessible and encouraging and comforting. And that's part of, my, that's part of what my goal today and, and what I'm sharing. You know, Bill's been talking about um, the importance of being students of the kingdom. And, and to be a student is to be teachable. Um, it's to be one that, that, that looks deeper into certain things to understand them. And I, and I feel that's what we need to do with, this, with the book of Revelation. We, we have to study it. We have to look into it. We, have to, we want to focus on it and ask God, like, what can we learn? Why have you given us this book? Why does this exist? And, and when we do that, I think we, we, find, we, we find a lot more in it than we, than we presuppose. So... So today I'm going to focus a lot more on Revelation chapter 1 and chapter 2. I'm not going to get into eschatology, which is the study of the end times. I'm not going to get into all that. And, and that's a whole thing, and maybe that's for a later time. But I want, to view, I want us to look specifically at the first chapter of what Jesus reveals about himself and, and what he reveals about his heart through what he reveals about himself. And so, we're, I mean, we're singing that this morning. God, we want to know what moves you. Jesus, we want to understand your heart. I'm telling you, if you read and you meditate on Revelation chapter 1 and, and beyond, but specifically that chapter, you will understand the heart of Jesus at a whole nother level. And, and so we get to do this together, um, and I hope it, it provokes you um, to go deeper in, in this word. So my title of my message today, right, is, up, oh, I've lost my notes, um, is that the church that over, oh, hold on one second. That's weird. Okay. Now we're back in. So the title of my message is Take Another Look. And, and I think it's really interesting how when we view something for the first time, it shapes, it, it shapes our brain in a certain way. When you, when you experience something, it, it becomes like a central, you have a central hub of information about that thing that you first heard about, and it becomes very hard to kind of change how you, it, it takes time and effort to change how you view something. So like with children, Vanessa and I try to share with our kids up front, we won't be the first one to tell them about things like sexuality or, um, we, we want to be the first one to tell them about these things because if somebody else tells them something, all of a sudden, it, it can become a stronghold. It, it's hard for them to learn outside of what they first learned. So I, I wonder um, how, how you and I, how we first learned about the book of Revelation. Because that's really important for how we view that book, right? Like, how, what, what were you taught? What did you think about it when you first read it or somebody told you about it? What did they tell you? So I, I, have, a, I have a list of top reasons why people... Don't read the book of Revelation. Um, and so maybe I'm going to make this interactive here. So I, I want you to see if you can make some of my list. Maybe you have some new ones. Can you give me a reason why people wouldn't want to read the book of Revelation? Anybody? Fear? What else was there in there? It's confusing. Yeah, those are both on my list. Anybody else? Why would you not want to read the book of Revelation? It's confronting. Anyone else? It's complex. It feels conflicting. No, that's good. I mean, mine, mine was, it's weird. <laughs> I mean, I remember somebody in New York sharing with me all this stuff, and I was like, what is this person talking about? And then I realized, oh, everything they're talking about is in the book of Revelation. Like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to read. This is strange. Um, the imagery is, is confusing, intimidating. Um, the other point I have, it doesn't feel relevant to my life. You know, the Gospels, I, I can relate that more, but the book of Revelation doesn't feel relevant. Um, it feels like, some people would say it feels like a distraction from what's important. It, it feels like, you know, a lot trying to figure out all these components of the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, like how, how's the world coming to an end. Um, you know, I think one of the best reasons why people don't read the book of Revelation um, is they think that it, they think that it doesn't, it makes you not responsible 
for the, the present world, right? And I, I've seen that argument, and I think there's some truth to it, where you can read, oh, things are getting worse and bad things are going to happen. So when things happen, you, you don't, ah, you know, God said things are going to get worse. It's all right. You know, the, the book of Revelation said things are going to be crazy. So we, it almost, it can produce apathy. I think that's, that's why some people would say, ah, why, why get into it, you know? It's, I want to be a change agent. I don't want to agree with all the crazy things in the book of Revelation. Um, now, the, uh, this is probably really the best. The best reason why people don't read the book of Revelation is Jesus has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of freaky, right? And, um, so I just go back to the Gospels. I, I, want, I want the Jesus who won't stone anybody, all right? That's, that's what I want. I don't want the Jesus with the, you know, the double-edged sword protruding out of his mouth, all right? So I, I think these are just real reasons why we wouldn't even want to dig deeper into this book. Um, and I think they keep us from honestly getting, getting immersed in, in what Jesus wants to communicate to the church. And that's really what the whole first part of the book is, Jesus revealing himself to the church and thus to me and to you. Um, so give a little, I'm going to give a little context book, Revelation. It was written by the Apostle John near the end of his life. He's an old man. He's on the um, island of Patmos. Um, he appears that he was exiled there. It was written around the first century, so right near the end of the first century. Um, the book was sent to seven churches in Asia Minor, and we'll get to that. Um, that's in modern-day Turkey is where all those churches are. Um, at the time, the Roman Empire was at, was at its height. It was expanding and growing, and at its height, persecution was increasing at that time on the Christians from both Jews and from the Romans. Uh, the Roman Empire demanded loyalty and, and actual worship towards the emperor himself. Um, so that was increasing pressures. And, you know, based on the timeline, you're talking, this is like 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So the church has had this, this season of, you know, Jesus coming, and many of them thinking he's coming back, this is going down. And so you can imagine they would need some level of encouragement, comfort, um, and clarity on what's going on. It's been 60 years. And so, so all this is context for the book of Revelation. I'm going to jump in. Um, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. All right, the revelation from Jesus Christ, key word, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads out loud the word of prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So I'm blessed because I get to read it, and you're blessed because you're listening to it. This is good. We're blessed this morning. And, and it's the revelation from Jesus Christ. I want to highlight that. That's the source. It's a, this is the revelation from Jesus Christ. Just let that sit for a second. From Jesus Christ, the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we see revelation, we think apocalypse, end times, all these crazy things happening. But the book starts with... It's really got a branding issue. They, could, they should call it the, the testimony of Jesus Christ instead of Revelation Apocalypse. Like, that would be a lot. I just feel like it's more inviting, you know. <laughs> so, you know, now, now it's heresy. I'm trying to rebrand the Bible. So here we go. Um, so the Revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's a prophecy, okay? This is a prophecy. This is the most important prophecy of our, of our time, of our age, you think how much time we spend like reading and trying to dissect prophecy. And we're a prophetic church and we believe in prophecy. But think about all the time that we put towards just straight up, you know, random internet prophecies, right? How much time and energy we put towards trying to understand those things when this is the greatest prophecy. I mean, and this is coming straight from Jesus. And so how, how much more should we want to dig into this prophecy and understand its implications for right now in our life. It's from Jesus. It's his testimony. All right. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from he who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is... I want you to catch this, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood 
and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So I want you to catch these words that Jesus refers to himself. The faithful witness. He's trustworthy. We were singing about that this morning. The firstborn from the dead. He's conquered death. He's all-powerful. The king of the earth. He's ruling over all of it. Now, I've heard these even put as past, present, and future. So you think of in the past, he was a faithful witness. In the present, he's a firstborn from the dead. In the future, he's the king of all the earth. So when we read this book, it, it opens by telling us about Jesus and, and about his power and his might. And, and that's the themes I personally have gotten out of this book. The, the three themes that I pick up when I read the book of Revelation is how present God is. It's, it's three Ps. How present, how powerful he is, and that his, he has a perfect plan. Th- those are comforting truths. He's present, he's powerful, and he has a perfect plan. And you see that in how he articulates himself to John, how he names himself. Eventually, we're going to get to how he describes himself. He says, he says I'm the Almighty. I'm the first and the last. I'm the alpha and the omega. The beginning alphabet and the end. I'm over it all. I'm in it all. I mean, this is comforting stuff. No matter what you're going through, to think of the largeness, the power, the might of this Jesus who's conquered the grave. This is who we serve. I I tell you, I need to hear this in this season that we're in. (laughs) I really need to be reminded of his power, of his might. And if we go to verse, uh, this is verse, uh, I think it's verse 5. To him who what? Who loves us and has freed us from our sins by the, by the power of his blood. He loves us. He's freed us from his sins. So this all-powerful, all-knowing God took his power, took his might, and he used it to free us by his blood. And he used us not just to set us free, but it says we're actual priests. We get to rule in the kingdom with God. So he loves us so much that he restored us and he, and he covered our, and he, you know, took off our shame and our sin. And now he's saying, I want, to, I want you to rule with me. I mean, this is, this is astounding. The goodness and grace of God is astounding. And it's here right in the beginning of the book, Revelation. And you need this revelation to read the rest of the book. You have to know his love. There's a, the prerequisite to the book of Revelation is knowing the love of God. If you know the love of God and the father heart of God, you will read this book completely different. You won't get thrown off by all the, all the confusing you know, things that take place because you say, no, this is a God who says from the beginning, he loves me. He loves me and he died for me and I've been set free from the power of sin and now I get to rule and reign with him. That is the beginning of the book and it's important context for everything we're going to read from here out. And in, how interesting is it that the book of Revelation was given to John, the apostle that Jesus loved. John, the one who, who at the Last Supper is leaning his head against Jesus' chest. Like, John deferred himself as the, as the disciple that Jesus loved. He had the revelation of his love, and here he is penning the book of Revelation. And so the, these things go together, and it's just it's key context for what we're going to read. All right, Revelation 1, I'm going to keep going through first chapter, chapter, um, or verse 10, through 11. On the Lord's day, this is John writing, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Write this down and send it out. Think about that. Jesus told him to write this down and send it. This is not a personal revelation Jesus himself said, you send this thing out. I mean, doesn't that make you want to read the rest of the book? (laughs) Jesus said, this needs to get out on the press. This is not just some personal prophecy. This is for my church. This is for you and for me. If we had a letter here that we knew Jesus penned, and Bill, Bill White got his hands on it, right, Pastor Bill, like, wouldn't we be like, like, want to just we put that thing on the wall. We would try to dissect it. We tried to understand it. We would we, we'd say, this is a letter to the church of New York City. We have to understand what's on Jesus' heart, what matters 
to Jesus. Because there's so much minutia, there's so many, so many things we can do with our time, with our church, with our lives. What is Jesus saying to the church of New York City? We would fight over that letter if, well, I mean, it's, we have the internet, but if it was just a, a scroll, right? I'm, I'm playing games here, but if it was just a scroll. We would say, give me that letter. I want to understand it. I, I have to know what Jesus wants for Church of New York right now. And so that type of urgency is really, it, it's, you can easily equate that with reading the book of Revelation because it was written to those seven churches, but it was written about things which none of those churches would actually go through, right? The letters to them did, but everything else, I mean, this stuff is for us. So we should be eager and hungry to try to understand what God is writing because he's, he wrote it to us, but he gave it to these seven churches first. Revelation, uh, going to keep going, chapter 1, verse 12 through 16. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. I'm going to stop right there. Someone like a son of man. That term, son of man, is only, is only seen once in the Old Testament. And it's in the book of Daniel. But Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man routinely. He's the only person in the Bible that called himself the Son of Man. And so if you go through, we're not going to go in it today, but you go through and look at Daniel chapter 7. Just read through that whole chapter. It's very connected to the book of Revelation. And what you see in that chapter is it's the Ancient of Days, like which is God the Father. And it's Jesus actually receiving dominion and authority and the kingdom and so, it, anyway, go back and read it. It's very much connected. I'm, I'm going to keep going. Um, to continuing. He was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. And his feet were like bronze growing, glowing in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. This is a very interesting but could be frightening, you know, depiction. This is how Jesus chooses to reveal himself to John. It's worth sitting on. It's worth reading. It's worth asking, Jesus, why are you revealing yourself like this? What is it about your nature and who you are that has caused you to want to you know, to reveal yourself this way to John and thus to us. It's very interesting. And, and even if you look at how he refers to the hair of his head, it was white like wool, white as snow. That's the same reference in Daniel 7 to the Ancient of Days. White hair, white like wool, that exact terminology. So what he's doing here is he's, he's definitely connecting Jesus with, Jesus is connecting himself with the Father and saying, I am I am God I am equivalent with God the Father and so that is a, a clear statement but there's so much here and I, I'm not actually going to dig into all these I'm going to leave that I'm going to leave that to you all like there but there's so much within this description that that we can get about the character and nature of Jesus about who he is and and this is how he decided to depict himself I um so so as we go through the rest of the book um, I want you to just look at how he takes these descriptive terms for himself, his names, and also his appearance, and he applies them in what he says to the seven churches. He applies them in different parts of the book of Revelation. So you see this is a central part of the book because he takes his appearance and his names and he puts it for different people to hear and understand because he's trying to emphasize a different part of who he is. All right? Um, Revelation 1, we're going to go to verse 17. So we're just continuing. Um, when I saw him, John, I fell at his feet as though dead. So yeah, I mean, we, we, th we think about how <laughs> we have these great encounters with God, right? It's like, oh, I love you, Lord. It's so great. He fell dead. I mean, he was terrified. And you see that pretty frequently in the Bible. Some of these encounters, they're great, but they're terrifying. Um, then he placed his right hand on me. I love this part. Jesus placed his right hand on John, and he said, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, 
I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I want you to hear that today for yourself. I'm going to read it again. This, we need to hear this verse for ourselves, like regularly, right? When we're experiencing any level of fear, just like Chaco's talking about, this fear she's experiencing, hear the words of Jesus to you. Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. You can, you can pray that over yourself every day. That's just, that's just good truth about who Jesus is. He holds the keys of death and Hades. He went to the grave, and he got the keys, and he decides who dies and, and who gets to live in eternal life. It's, it's now Jesus who's in the driver's seat because of the cross. This is good news. I'm going to keep reading. Right there for what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw at my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. All right, here we go. Here's the interpretation. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, okay, that's, that's, that makes sense. That's helpful. Like, so the Bible, it's interpreting itself, and it's saying those seven lampstands that we saw Jesus was where? In the midst of them are the seven churches. Think about that. He's in the midst of the seven churches. That's where he's standing. That's where he's present. That's how he's revealing himself in the seven churches. And he's holding in his hand the seven stars, which it says are the angels. Now, that word is messenger, and, and there's some that believe that that actually is an apostolic leader over these different churches. So those are actual people that are, that are messengers that, that John is giving these letters to that oversee the seven churches. So that, that's a really precious revelation right there. First of all, Jesus is in the midst. He's in our midst today. He's in the midst of the church. And how, how precious he holds the leaders of the church in his hand. I, it's, it's a lot more interesting, right, once you actually get the next level interpretation. of like, oh, okay, there's more to this. And we're at a lampstand. That's interesting. We're, 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 we're not the light. We are a lampstand holding the light. That is interesting. Jesus, what, what, is, what are you trying to say um, through this? You know, through all these allegories. What, what's going on here? Um, if you look at Matthew 20, 28, 20, this is all, th- this statement of Jesus being in the midst of the churches, it's really, it's backing up the Great Commission where Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm sending you out, but I'm with you always. And lo and behold, he's saying 60 years later, yep, I'm in the midst of the churches. That's where I'm standing. That's where I am. That's where I'm going to execute the kingdom is going to come forth from the midst of the churches. It's the body that I'm using for transformation on the earth. But it, it, makes, you, it makes you want to hold your tongue when you, when you come to, to criticize churches. It makes you want to, I feel we are so loose in, in this generation about how we say things. And we've talked about this, about just accus, accusatory spirits. But we, we so often say things like, and I've said it too, well, the church, if we just did this, or the church, man, they just got to do this and this. And I'm not talking about our church. I'm just talking about we generalize it, and maybe our church too, but we generalize and say, oh, if the church, we put ourselves outside of the church. Don't you realize that when we make those statements? It's like you're talking about yourself, but you're, you're talking about them, like those people. <laughs> it's, it's not really, it's not helpful. And, and so, so I would encourage us, and myself included, when we say, you know, I don't like this, or this is, I want to see this in the church, it's like the next statement should be something redemptive, constructive, something like owning what we see in the church at large or in our local church, and wanting to, because Jesus is in the midst of it. Jesus cares. He loves the church. So when we criticize the church and our brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, when my kids criticize each other, I don't like it. Like, they can be having fun, playing their thing, being funny, but when one of them starts criticizing the other, I shut it down immediately. I say, don't you talk about your sister like that. You stop right now. That's not how you talk about your sister. And so I feel the Lord is like, he has that because he has that love and affection for the church. Um, so I just feel there's a lack of fear of the Lord on it. And I felt I've made passing jokes about just certain things in the American church or actual American churches, 
And I felt the Lord rebuke me so hard. And I had to go back and say, hey, you know, you know, I made that statement. You know, I just kind of, I was joking. It sounded kind of funny, you know, but I, I don't stand behind that. Like, I felt the fear of the Lord because I was speaking at the expense of some church just because it was funny, just jokey, but I, I knew the Lord dis, was displeased. And, and so I feel we could learn from this. Um, I know I can. Um, we're going to keep going. Letters to the seven churches. I'm going to get into those letters. So what I just read here in verse um, 19, it says, Jesus says, I'm giving you, I'm going to tell you what you have seen, okay? That's what he just wrote, what, you know, the vision of Jesus, sword in the mouth, all that. I'm going to tell you what is now. So that's about what I'm about to read to you is Jesus telling them what is now, what's happening with these seven churches presently. And then I'm going to tell you what will take place later. So that's the whole rest of the book of Revelation about prophetically, here's what's going to take place later, all right? So we're in the section of what is now. And these are the seven churches um, that, I've, that I've just read. So with each of these churches, right, there's a general structure to the theme of Jesus, what he shares with them. Um, but one common phrase that's to most of these churches and sprinkled throughout the scriptures, the gospels included, is this phrase, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And so you see that phrase in other, in other texts as well. And, and I want to propose to you that that phrase essentially just means lean in. Lean in. Listen a, a bit more. Like start to, start to look a little deeper than what you just you read on the surface. Look a little deeper. And so he's got things he wants to whisper to our ears but we'll only know them if we lean in, if we get close with his heart, if we lean into his word. And so one way I could describe this is um, I have a, a daughter. I mentioned her. She's four months old. Her name's Florence. And I, I put her to bed every night. And so Vanessa kind of, you know, nurses her and puts her down in the crib. And then I, I come in. I'm, I'm the finisher. You know, I'm the closer in baseball. I've got to, like, get her to sleep. And that's my job. And so I, so I go in, and I'm normally in the living room, which is bright lights. And I go into the dark bedroom. And so I enter in, and I know there's a baby in here. So I'm like, all right, she's over here. I know, here's her crib. But, you know, you can't see anything when you're going from a bright room to a dark room. And so I, I'm literally feeling around. Oh, there's her head. Like, I think these are her feet. And, and so I'm trying to get a sense of where she is because I know there's a precious baby in here. I have to get her to sleep. Um, and so, so I, feel, I, I feel like as we, this word, like having ears to hear, it means, it means be patient. It means if I'm patient and I tarry, I wait in that room and I look for this baby, eventually my eyes start coming into focus. I adjust and I can see her clearly. And I can, I can see the whole room clearly. And this is how when we read the scriptures, you can't just go into the book of Revelation or any book and think that you can just read it real quick and you're just going to see clearly. It's walking in a dark room out of the light room. You're not going to see it. <laughs> it takes time. It takes patience. It takes sitting in there, even when you can't see anything, reading the word, asking God, show me. I know there's a baby in here. I know there's a promise. I know there's something precious inside of these scriptures and these texts. This is a testimony of Jesus. I know it's in here, but I don't see it. And he says, have ears to hear. Keep listening. Keep waiting. I, I want to speak to you, but it's, it's going to take some time. You're going to have to be in that room a little longer. So, so that's the way I... I see it. Um, so I want to get into these, into these letters, okay? So, so that phrase is frequent. Um, you also have uh, how Jesus starts each um, letter to the seven churches about how he relates to that church based on his figure, his appearance, and based on his name. You know, how he's the first and the last, or how he has, he has eyes of fire. So he gives that description to them, and it shows you how he understands the uniqueness of each church. And literally, he's saying the solution to your problem or to what you're facing starts with understanding an aspect of who I am. Isn't that good? I'll say it again. The solution to your and I problem, it starts with understanding an aspect of who Jesus is, with seeing him rightly, understanding his character, understanding his authority, understanding his power, understanding his appearance. That is, that's the ultimate first step if we're going to actually like, move through this life with Jesus and be victorious and overcome. Number one, we have to see him rightly. And so he gives, he gives an extra description for each church. He gives I know you statements. 
So I know your works. I know your perseverance. I know he says things that he knows that he appreciates about, about the churches. And then he gives, I have this against you statements. Oh, boy. And those are the ones that, those are the ones that we always remember, too. Which is like, there's like a whole letter. But we just remember, oh, yeah, he has this against those people. Those people had it wrong. It just shows you, right? We're a little jaded. Like, this is like that's a New York mentality. Oh, yeah, those people. Um, so anyway, he, and then he ends to everyone who conquers. And, and he gives a statement of everyone who conquers. Here's the eternal rewards. Here's the, the things that are going to keep you going when you feel like you don't want to endure. You don't want to keep going. But here's the reality. And this is where we're students of the kingdom. We have to see the big picture. Oh, this is what we get when we walk with the Lord, when we persevere. These are the, these are the re rewards. And so that's the structure of each, of, each, um, of each letter to the seven churches. And I'm going to read to you just one of those letters today, the, book of, um, or the letter to the Ephesian church. And so the Ephesian church, just to give you a little context, it's the largest city in Asia Minor. Um, it was the seat of the Roman Empire in Asia, so it's a very significant city. Um, it's very wealthy, a source of major trade. Paul established the church there in 53 AD. So, and you can read more about that book of Acts. You look at Acts 19, 20. Um, it's going to give you a little more context for the establishment of the church of Ephesus. Um, so this book is written 40 years after the establishment of this church. All right? That's important context. Um, it's a center for idol worship. You see that also in Acts 19 and 20. There was a great revival. As I mentioned, it was a great move of God. Mike Bickle says this was one of the most, probably the most significant church of that time. So this is the most influential, significant church of that time, according to him. Um, it, this church had great leaders. I mean, Apostle Paul, that's not bad, right? He was there a couple years. Pretty good start. Um, Timothy, then he put in place in Ephesus. We read that a few weeks ago, 1st, 2nd Timothy. Um, and then John himself, who was penning this letter, was one of the leaders at Church of Ephesus. So that's where he was for, for I don't know how long, but he was there for a time. So he's writing to a church he's familiar with. He was a pastor of the church. So I want to I lay out three lessons that I see from the letter to the, to the church of Ephesus. Here's three lessons for us today that we can apply. Number one, Jesus knows us. He knows us. And I'll show you in this letter. Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. There you go. He walks. He's in the midst of the church. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Very short, simple statement. Profound. Jesus knows the deeds and the hard work and the perseverance of this church. He knows. He knows them intimately. He knows the things that they've overcome and endured. We just skip over that, but think how significant that is. Jesus is going out of his way to write this letter to this church to tell them he knows them. He knows them. And I think one of the greatest lies is that we, what we do with our life doesn't matter. That, you know, it, it rains on the, you know, it rains on everybody, right? The unrighteous and, and the righteous. And everybody's just going to get the same thing. And what you really do doesn't matter. What you did coming on the subway today doesn't matter. You know, if, if you loved and gave, you know, gave your time and energy to help somebody do something, well, it doesn't really matter. It's just it's nice. But the truth is God sees it all. He's above all. And, and it does matter what the, even the little things you do with your life. And he sees it, and he's rewarding, and he's honoring them for it. And I just think of, like, this proud father sort of response that he's giving. So my daughter, Fern, she, uh, I mentioned her earlier, she had uh, a poetry competition this week. And, and so I, I watched it on Zoom. She gets up, delivers her lines. And at the very end, they announced the winners for, like, kindergarten through second. And I'm sitting there. I'm gritting my teeth. And, um, and the second place ones, I'm like, oh, no, she's better than that kid. Gosh. Like, she must not have gotten it, you know, but she's better than that kid. And, and then, lo and behold, she gets first place. So they, they bring her up, and she gets first place, and I'm yelling. I'm like, yeah! I'm like, you know, stomping around the house. Florence wakes up. Lilu's crying. Like, I upset the whole house. I was so proud. And, and, so, and I just see that the Lord, like, Jesus is encouraging them. You got to take it through the context of that father heart. It's like, oh, I love you. I love what you've done. I love how you persevered. It's much deeper than just that little brief word that we get. Um, and I can relate to it because I have kids, and I, I know what that pride feels like. 
Um, all right, so number, so number one was Jesus knows me. Number two, Jesus, Jesus knows us. Number two, Jesus calls us to not tolerate evil. Jesus calls us to not tolerate evil. Revelation 2, verse 2. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships in my name and have not grown weary. So there's that fatherly exhortation again. But he says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. And you see, you see in these letters what matters to Jesus. And so in, in multiple of these letters to different churches, he either acknowledges and encourages them for not tolerate evil, or he rebukes them and saying, why are you tolerating? Why are you letting these things happen? This is not what I want. This is not good. So Jesus does not like when we tolerate evil. He does not like it. He desires that we separate ourselves from things that are evil and that are false. And, and in this culture, that will cost you something. If you don't tolerate evil and wickedness, if you say, no, I'm not, I'm not going along with whatever, um, I mean, you fill in the blank, you, you will lose things. You will lose friends. You will lose money. You may lose jobs. Think, there is a cost to not tolerating the things that are wicked and evil and saying, you know what, I'm here to love, but I won't compromise what's true and what's right and good. I won't compromise the things that Jesus values. And, and so I love, it's actually quite comforting that God takes such a strong stance and says, no, like I don't tolerate evil and wickedness because I care about people because I don't want to see people suffer and destroyed. And when people don't live according to how I've called them to, according to how I've made them, their life will be utterly destroyed, not only in the end, but even in the present world. So he loves us so much that he's calling his church to not tolerate wickedness. Don't tolerate it. And, and so you see this even when we talk about sin in our life, right? We can say, oh, you know, like, it's just this sin thing. It's just got me down. It's like, no, like, that, first of all, it's not you. It's not your identity. And second of all, the, you, you can't tolerate. You war against that. that the sin that you, that's creeping in your life is, there, is your enemy. It's there to destroy you. So you don't, you don't try to counsel it or compromise with it. You literally say, that's not who I am. Jesus made me a new creation, and I will not agree with this wickedness that's trying to destroy my life. And you see it for what it is, an enemy. You don't see it as something that, oh, it's just a struggle that I have, and hopefully one day I get rid of it. No, like, that's your enemy. Because Jesus said it was. He said, don't tolerate it in your life. So you can take it on a personal and on a, in a greater level. And if you look on here, he's saying, test people. Test the apostles. Test the things that are being, don't, just because people have, you know, great works or they claim to be apostles, like, don't, don't just take them at that word. Test. Are they growing in love? Are they, are they looking more like me? Are they being conformed to, the, to my image? And, and so th we, we don't want to just let anybody into our certain places of our life. We don't want to let anybody into certain leadership positions, whether that's a church or, or other facet. We have to test what people say and see, are they really growing and looking more like Christ? All right, number three. So number one was Jesus knows us. Number two, Jesus calls us to not tolerate evil. Number three, love for Jesus is paramount. Love for Jesus is paramount. It is of the high, highest importance. Revelation 2 verse 4. And here's, here's where the, here's, everybody knows this about the church of Ephesus. Oh, they, they didn't follow their first love. Everybody knows this, but we, we got to remember the context before, all right? Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he's saying to them in very strong terms, go back to the things you once did. Go back to the first love that you had for me. And you, you read it in Acts, when the, when, when the, when the city, when, when many in the city got saved and received Jesus, the great depth of their love that they had for God. And what he's saying is, you've persevered, you've done all these great things, but you've, you've strayed from me. Your love for me is not strong 
like it used to be. And it hurts my heart. I mean, so he, he communicates this in such a strong way. He says, you have fallen. Repent. But what he's saying is come back to the love you had for me at first. You can do all these great things. But if you don't have that, you might, you might lose your lampstand. If you don't have that, your life will, will not actually, you won't be able to persevere and do the things I've called you to do if you don't have that. It's so critical that we, we keep that first love. We keep love for God as the central part of our life. And I love how he delivers this statement, right? So if you look at the context that I just gave you, he says first, I'm with you. I'm in your midst. I see you. He says next, I see you. I know you. I know your good works. Then he says, you've lost your first love. You've, this is a big problem. Come back to me. Come back. And then he says, I'm going to warn you, if you don't come back, there's going to be consequences. But if you do come back and you love me as you did at first, there's going to be great reward, great celebration. So that, that's the whole, that's how he communicates. I think we could all learn from communication the way Jesus does it. When we, we have things, you know, towards people, you see how he, he's very gentle and kind. And it seems abrupt because we, we focus on the, I, I have this against you, but it's not. It's gentle and it's loving and Jesus is he's moving this church in to actually fulfill their mandate and call to be his hands and feet on the earth. And, and he's doing it by, he's, he's rebuking them, but he's doing it in love. And we have to, we have to learn to receive a rebuke from Jesus. That, that, that correction will spare us so much pain and suffering if we can just receive a correction, have a teachable heart. Worship team, could you guys um, go ahead and come up? I'm, I'm closing up here. Um, so I believe it's a season for us. This is probably every season. So I'll say it's a season, but it's, it's always a season to go back to our first love, to go back to that, that initial love that we had for Jesus and where that is the centerpiece of our life. That's the centerpiece of how we live. That's the centerpiece of what we think about. It's the centerpiece of our home, our family, our business. It's our love for Jesus. We, you know, we use these phrases like, you know, let's go run after God. Let's, you know, let's do this thing. And it's like, I feel like those phrases, they mean well, but they're, they're kind of like distracting a bit because <laughs> it, it feels like when now, you know, pastor's saying we need to go and love God more. So I'm going to go and do it. And it's, it, it's really not, it's really not the, the whole, I mean, we have, it's Valentine's Day, right? So what are you going to do today with people that you love? You know, like you say, I'm going to go after you and run after you harder. Like, no, you're going to spend time with them. You're going to get to know them. You're going you're gonna to love on them. You're going to hear their heart, understand them. Um, so going back to your first love doesn't mean you go in the Bible and you run hard. It means you seek him. You sit with him. You, you go on walks with him. You bring him into your work. You bring him into your, your family. It, it means you, it, it's not this workspace sort of thing. And so if you, I don't want you to take that from what I'm saying today. And that's, that's not what I'm talking about. You, you, do the, you do the John, the apostle thing. You lean into his heart. All right? You lean into his heart. That, that's how you go back to first love. It's, first love is simple. It's pure. I mean, I remember when I got saved, gosh, like my whole world flipped upside down. And it took time. But I, it was, it was, I had such gratitude in my heart because I knew where I'd just come from <laughs> and I knew where I was now. And, and so I believe going back to first love is also that place of gratitude, the place of humility, knowing your need for the Lord and where he's taken you. You know, years ago I met a, um, there was this pastor I looked up to, a really, really awesome preacher, and I saw him in a coffee shop and I was there reading my Bible and he came up to me and he was working on a sermon and um, I said, I said, man, like, I love your messages, dude. How do you do it? Like, and he said, oh, you know, I'm, I just listen to lots of sermons and I just, you know, I, I just listen to lots of stuff and then I'm able to share it. And I looked at him and I thought, my heart broke for the man. Because here I was, you know, I was like 20 years old. I don't have any, anything going on much. I'm just kind of loving on these high school kids doing my thing. But I had love in my heart for Jesus. And I knew he didn't have it. Like I knew, not to criticize him, but I knew 
that it was, he was going through the motions of, of being a leader, being a pastor. And, and you can apply this to anything you're doing. You, where you just go through the motions, right? You go through the motions of life, but you're not really growing in love for God. You're not really connected with his heart. And that, that breaks God's heart. And, and that, friends, is, is the invitation this morning. If you're going through motions, if you're feeling, if you're not growing in, in love for God, something's off. You're not seeing him rightly. And we can just say, gosh, something's off. Something's off in my heart. Something's off with how, with how I view myself, how I view God. I, I'm going through the motions. If you can start to say that, boy, he'll meet you in that place. He's in our midst. He's here. He's in this place. And I think a few strategies I would have for you is go back to your initial testimony, all right? Go back, recollect it. Even right now when we go into a time of worship, go back, recollect that early time, those early moments when you encountered him. Go to that place. You know, some of us have even songs that'll take us back. When I was preparing this message, the Lord brought this song up to my, to my mind from when I first, you know, encountered him, and I played it. And it's a cheesy song. It's such a cheesy Christian song. But let me tell you, when I heard it, when the sound filled my ears, I wept. I broke. <laughs> because that song was connected to my encounter with him. It was connect, and it, it was, there was a sense of, first love, you know. So go back to that song. Go back to the songs that he's given you. Yeah, everybody can stand, please. So Father God, we pray today, would you make our hearts sensitive to you again? Make our hearts sensitive. Make our hearts sensitive, Lord, that we would have not hearts of stone, but hearts of flesh. God, we thank you that you're in our midst. We thank you that you're aware of the details of our life. We thank you, Lord, that you have eyes of fire eyes of desire for us. Holy Spirit, I pray right now, every person in this room, every person on Zoom, would you remind us of that first love? Would you remind us of those moments in our walk where we felt your touch? And for those that have never experienced that, I pray right now, the love of Jesus, the love of Jesus would overwhelm your heart. The love of Jesus is what can set you free. The love of Jesus is what can restore and mend and redeem any life, any heart. We thank you, Jesus, that only your love satisfies.